welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Lucy Jewell, Professor of Law and Director of Legal Writing at the University of Tennessee College of Law. We will discuss her article, Does the Reasonable Man Have Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, which is published in the Wake Forest Law Review. So welcome to the show, Lucy. Hi, Brian. I'm so happy to have you on the show because when I saw your article come across my SSRN feed, I was like, I have to read this and I can't wait to talk to her about it because um, I've always found the reasonable man standard both kind of amusing and like weirdly compelling in a funny way. You know, it's like one of the strongest memories I have of, you know, initially going to law school and whatnot. Uh, but I wonder for for listeners who might still be law students or might not be that familiar with the standard and its history. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the nature of the concept of the reasonable man. I mean, like, where did it originate and what's the purpose of the standard in, in United States law? Well, the reasonable man or reasonable person standard is, is an analytic tool. Um, it's designed for judges to sort of look at facts, look at um, circumstances, and apply the law in an objective and a, and a neutral way. Um, and so it, it came out of court law. Um, that's where it's sort of, I guess, it's germinal, um, which is, you know, if you are looking at a, a person's conduct and the standard of care, you know, what would a reasonably prudent man, a reasonable person um, and if it falls outside of the bounds of reasonableness, then that is that is where liability can attach. Um, now, it was created in, you know, it really came to the surface in the 1800s, um, but it actually goes back to Roman law, uh, to this concept of the patrofamilias, which is the good father of the family. So it's a longstanding legal category, but it's an analytic tool and it's supposedly designed for judges to, you know, make their decisions, you know, in a logical and a rational way and, and not impose their own, you know, viewpoint, you know, over the facts and circumstances. But, you know, because of where the reasonable man comes from, um, it's, it, it's almost like that's a fallacy. That does not happen um, all the time. Well, so what exactly makes the reasonable man standard and objective standard then, or at least in theory, an objective standard? And is objectivity really the right way to think about what it's trying to accomplish? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the the people who would, who would champion the reasonable man standard uh, would say that it's a, it's a, it's almost like a democratizing tool because it's, the judge is not substituting his judgment, um, but is instead stepping into this every man, you know, you know, this is the every person standard. Um, but how do you really separate, I guess, the construction of that standard from the standard itself? Um, it's also, you know, as the reasonable man was being constructed, it was it was constructed by by men. Um, all of the judges who did the work of building him up were men, um, the most famous of which is would be Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. 
Um, so part of the problem is that it's, it is a standard that doesn't represent you know, all of humanity. It certainly doesn't represent women, people of color, um, and other outsiders. Uh, so, but it, I guess it comes from this place that reason and objectivity is sort of the best place, the best vantage point for solving legal, legal problems. But then there's this myopic nature of it because it ignores context. It ignores um, other perspectives that kind of are excluded from the person's perspective, the reasonable person's perspective. Um, I would say the other problem with the reasonable man standard is that it denies all emotion it denies the body, you know, it, it, it proceeds on this Cartesian construct that the mind is separate from the body. Um, and that is how we think. And we know from modern psychology, cognitive psychology, um, that that's not true. You know, the mind and the body are integrated. And when we reason, it is very much an embodied process. Well, I mean, it seems even from a legal standpoint, in an odd way, the reasonable man standard seems to both imply a certain level of kind of epistemic humility on the part of judges in the sense they're supposed to defer to popular wisdom, but then the judges at the same time are supposed to sort of rely on their own understanding of what popular wisdom would be, at least in certain circumstances. And so I wonder if sometimes the reasonable man doesn't end up uh, ultimately kind of de facto becoming the reasonable judge. Yeah, I think that's definitely correct. Um, and I think my article, when it, when it goes through some of the cases, you know, the judge is, you know, supposed to be taking on this reasonable objectivity. Um, but in reality, it's really just the judge substituting the judge's wisdom for, you know, every, what the wisdom should be for all of society. Um, and that's, that's one of the problems. Well, so in, in your article, you specifically note that you're talking here about the reasonable man standard specifically rather than the reasonable person standard. Um, so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why the reasonable man standard as sort of actually applied is so fundamentally gendered and why that gendering might be potentially a problem. Okay. Well, as I, as I go through it in my article, um, the reasonable man, and, and I kind of go into like, what is his history? Um, not only is he constructed by judges, but his very identity is, I, I say that it's male, but it's also, he is a, he's a father and he is a disciplinarian. Um, so all of these things come together to create a very authoritarian and disciplinarian approach to law. Um, and it's very much about imposing order and structure um, and making things so that, you know, any mess is, is just not just kind of disregarding any mess and keeping everything in its sort of categorical place. 
Um, and honestly, what inspired me to write this article was reading Anthony Amsterdam and Jerome Brunner's book, Minding the Law. Um, and they're talking about one of the cases that I, that I surface in the article, but um, I'm talking about Justice Scalia being, you know, he, his opinion is elementally designed so as to preserve his orderly and hard edge rules against the messy little facts that might disorder him. Um, so I guess the maleness comes from, you know, being, having a need to impose power and control over the facts, over the people. Um, and it comes from a need for hierarchy, um, not just because, you know, the man or the male is the top of the pyramid, but also um, threats to hierarchy and threats to categories are scary. They're very scary um, for people who are, you know, used to having certainty. Um, and so this, this kind of psychological need for categories, formalism, um, it's, it's almost like the man imposing order and control over his own world. Um, so in a nutshell, I think if it was the reasonable person standard was, you know, less gendered as male, it would, it would be more of a, what George Lakoff refers to as, you know, more focused on nurturing, you know, on care and warmth. Um, and that's not what we see in the law, um, not very often at least. What struck me that in the paper, you kind of characterized the practical genderedness of the reasonable man standard as actually realized in the law as both ideological, but also also pathological. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about both the ideology of the standard or the concept and also how that ideology sort of reflects the pathology that you recognize. Sure. So the ideology comes in a lot of ways from the sort of religious and, and legal history that I trace um, and I put into The Reasonable Man. And I go into history of law in our country and, and I kind of go into the Puritan ethic and the, the Anglican ethic. Um, and I talk about, you know, how in both those colonial religious and legal cultures, because before, um, you know, before we had a revolution, you know, there, there were, it was a theocracy um, in the colonies. Um, but what I'm talking about in that part of the article is that the law and our culture together um, is very much based upon sort of this need to impose order on the people, on the body. So I, I talk a little bit about branding, you know, about public shaming, um, people who in the colonies were, you know, transgressing boundaries, um, often were punished in a way that was very visible to society. Um, and so this, and there was also a very strong Christian belief in hierarchy like as hierarchy as a thing that is ordained by God. And so things that would breach the hierarchy would be punished legally 
but in a very visual and, and corporal way. Um, and this kind of cultural, legal cycle, you know, created an ideology that made it into our reasonable man standard and made it into our law. Um, so we no longer have such, you know, visceral corporal punishments, but the, the sort of necessity of hierarchy and, and the, you know, what happens when you break that hierarchy definitely continued into our law, um, particularly during slavery, during Jim Crow, and during some of the other cases that came afterwards. Mm. Well, so in the article, you, you provide several different examples of cases that you think sort of, as I took it, sort of reflect in a particularly sort of telling way, the kind of pathological ideology of the reasonable man standard as actually realized. I don't think we'll have time to talk about all of them, but I wonder if you could kind of pick out two or three that you think are especially uh, compelling and talk a little bit about sort of like how you would characterize those decisions in relation to the observations you're making in the paper. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I did, the, I guess the the main thesis of my paper is is not about whether, not criticizing the reasonable man standard per se, but taking the reasonable man, you know, as a anthropomorphic stand-in and putting him on the psychologist couch and then analyzing him, you know, because my ultimate thesis is that he's sick. You know, he, he exhibits forms of psychosis. Um, and, and we can see this in some of these decisions that I'm talking about. So I think the first case that I talk about, which is the Dred Scott case, really illustrates an aspect of this. So that case, it's an antebellum case. Um, it upheld slavery. It upheld um, the idea that a person of color is, is property um, rather than a, a citizen. Um, but when I read this case and I, and I was thinking about it for the paper, um, the most weird thing about this case is the amount of page, just the amount of text that Judge Taney devotes to miscegenation laws. Um, so you would think like miscegenation, what does that have to do with, you know, whether a law, you know, about slavery should be enforced or not? Um, and my takeaway is that the fear of miscegenation, which was expressed in that opinion, and we, we saw it later in the trial court decision in Loving versus Virginia, it was really a fearful um, decision. Like, I, the judge is afraid of, you know, what would happen if these boundaries are, are transgressed. And so it's not about citizenship. It's about preventing miscegenation. I think there's also a psychological taboo going on in this case. Um, and I actually didn't write this in the paper, but, um, you know, slavery was also, I mean, the, the very dirty secret of slavery is that the white property owners were raping enslaved women, you know, and creating more property. That was definitely happening. And so was this sort of a subliminal undercurrent that was fueling Justice Taney's fear as he wrote this decision um, and spent so many pages talking about 
the colonial miscegenation laws as, as being authority for his position that, you know, the, the current climate did not, would, would not support uh, the idea that you could be a citizen if you uh, moved to outside of the jurisdiction of slavery. Um, so I think that case is a good bounding, you know, stopping up, starting off point for my thesis and my article. Um, and why don't I just end with the last case, um, which was a case I teach in my entertainment law class. And I put it in, in the trajectory of cases because it really is an example of the judge exercising this strict father, you know, mentality um, over the case. Um, so that case was about, you know, a 1990s rapper named Biz Markey. And he had a song, um, and it sampled a 1970s soft rock artist named Gilbert O'Sullivan. So Gilbert O'Sullivan had a big hit in the 1970s called Alone Again, Naturally. Um, he's Canadian. He's dorky. It's, it's soft rock. And Bismarcky took the song, sampled it, and then, you know, he's rapping over it that he's alone again. Um, but he's really, you know taking the song and transforming it into something completely different. Um, and it's funny and it's, it's just, it's brilliant. Um, but he did not get clearance, copyright clearance to sample the Gilbert O'Sullivan song. Um, so he was sued. He and his record label were sued for copyright infringement. And the judge, it's Judge Kevin Duffy, Southern District of New York, um, begins the opinion with Thou Shalt Not Steal, and there's no consideration of the art or the transformative, transformative nature of the song. Um, it's a straight up, thou shalt not steal. You didn't get permission. Um, you know, therefore, you know, you have committed copyright infringement. And then at the end of the opinion, the judge actually refers the defendants to the prosecutor in the Southern District. So for criminal prosecution. Um, so it's it's kind of a an example of this artistic manipulation of categories is, you know, it is, it's not that it's stealing and I'm going to discipline, I'm going to discipline you for it. Um, and so that's why I included that in the paper. I, there are a few other cases that I talk about, uh, but we probably don't have time to get into all of them. Yeah, no, so I mean, one of the things that struck me, especially about the two examples you were really kind of three examples you just mentioned, were how not only gendered, but also kind of racialized the ideology of the reasonable man standard is in actual practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's you, and you can't really get into, yeah, you can't, it, the reasonable man is white um, and, and not just it's white Anglo-Saxon sort of very um, almost waspy mentality. I mean, he, he really is, he's been referred to as like a mid-century guy that, you know, mows the yard at night. Um, and so that's definitely part of both the ideology as well as the, you know, the sort of ethos um, that comes out in the opinions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I liked your your reference to almost like like a Ward Cleaver 
type figure, or I was thinking almost like a Mr. Rogers, but like a Mr. Rogers with a mean streak. Right. Right. Um, Mr. Rogers. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I mean, one of the things that I bring out in the paper is that there's, you know, the illness in the reasonable man is that sometimes he has a disassociative break with reality. You know, sometimes the formalism is so myopic that you're just, you're not seeing like the real reality. Um, and I think the Plessy versus Ferguson case illustrates that the best. Um, just the idea that a segregated train car is, is not, it's not worse, you know, than the other, the car for the whites. Um, it is the people of color who are putting that construction on it. Um, so that, that, that conclusion is to me, mental illness, you know, it's not, it doesn't reflect an understanding of reality. Um, and, and yet it gets into our law and it becomes precedent. Um, I forget, I forget what point I was trying to make. I guess I'm just trying to say that that's another symptom of his, of his illness. Mm. Well, in the in the in the article, you describe Justice Brown's opinion in Plessy as a form of judicial gaslighting, and I'd never really thought of it in that way before. But I I really kind of like that characterization. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, gaslighting. You know, it's it is what I say it is. You know, that's the reality, and you, you know, your 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 reality doesn't is actually yeah. It is. I think. Did I say gaslighting? Wow, I'm I'm actually pretty proud of myself for that. Um, but yeah, yeah, um, I don't think anyone has really ever said, or I just have always been struck at those kind of decisions um, that are so formalistic as being, you know, there's something wrong with the thinking, and it, it is pathological. <laughs> well, so I mean. If the reasonable man standard, as we've historically constructed and applied it, is pathological in this kind of order-maintaining um, kind of allergy to disruption sort of way, what, if anything, can we do to rehabilitate it? I mean, is there a sort of etiology of symptoms that we can address? Is there a therapeutic program for the reasonable man? Yeah. You know, this is the hard thing, you know? Yeah. Can we heal him? Um, you know, some of the things I mentioned in my paper are, you know, let's bring in other modes of reasoning into process. You know, Western forms of reasoning are, are, they've gotten us pretty far, but why not look at other modes of, you know, building consciousness, building knowledge, um, realizing that that's, you know, sometimes in conflict with our common law process. The other thing I mentioned is in, in any adversarial situation, you know, you've got, you've got like two sides, but why not take sort of a dialectic therapeutic approach, you know, and encourage judges to look at the two sides as, and, and, and analyze from the perspective of well, maybe two things can be true at the same time. You know, that sounds crazy because there's in law, there's always, you know, you win or you lose guilty, not guilty. Um, but maybe just hold in your mind the two sides together and say, maybe both of these things can be true at the same time. And then, you know, that will maybe lead to more just outcomes, you know, in that 
we are reducing instances of bias. We are reducing inc incidents where what we think is a rational thought process is actually, you know, prejudice in disguise. Um, I think the the solution of just infusing more context into decision making and changing our perspective from the white Anglo-Saxon sort of vantage point that we've always had and looking at things from the other, from other perspectives, even that sounds almost trite or, or banal, but um, I don't think it's done as much as it should be, particularly at the Supreme Court level when, you know, being a Supreme Court judge is you're coming from, you know, one kind of trajectory, Harvard or Yale Law School, you know, part of it, I guess, is who are we, who are we electing, who are we appointing as our judges? Um, all of our, most of our judges, well, I guess you could, you could quibble with that a little bit, but, you know, bringing more context in, both in the process, but also in the people we are selecting to be our judges. Mm. Well, it struck me that, you know, you acknowledge in the paper, you recognize in the paper that the sort of purpose, in a sense, of the reasonable man standard is to encourage or even require judges to be more deferential to popular understandings of the social order. And yet in practice, it seems to have become a way of enforcing the social order as perceived by judges. And I wonder if sort of part of what you're suggesting is that there's a need for more epistemic, like even more epistemic humility when it comes to kind of conceptualizing what it means to be reasonable, that in a sense, you know, the standard needs to incorporate like a broader range of perspectives in order to be less OCD about maintaining one vision of the social order as opposed to a more kind of ecumenical version, vision yeah, of the social order. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the last cases I've referenced in the article is, is a case out of, out of Boston, Commonwealth versus Warren. Um, where the judge basically is, is considering, you know, is it, would it be reasonable for a, a man of color to flee the police? You know, is that a reasonable choice or does that indicate guilt? Um, and I think that decision is just a great example of widening the lens um, and, and looking at the reality of what it is to be a man of color, you know, on the street and dealing with police. Um, and, you know, that the holding was a judge should in appropriate cases consider that men of color uh, run from the police, not because they're guilty, because they have a desire to avoid the recurring indignity of being racially profiled. Um, so I think if we had more decisions like that, um, that looked beyond, you know, this is, if you run from the police, you're definitely guilty. Like that comes from a very, small sort of vantage point, very privileged vantage point. And if we have more cases like Commonwealth versus Warren, you know, that could, that could start us on the path toward healing. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a broadening the view to be more ecumenical. I like that. I like that concept. 
ecumenical. Well, Lucy, thanks so much for coming on the show today and for talking. Yeah, I really enjoyed your paper and I hope listeners will check it out because it's a really fun read. Okay, awesome. Thanks. I was on my way to 125th. I saw the death bench, yo, that's my man Cliff. As I flagged him down, he pulled to the side. At this moment, I had to swallow my pride. Cause usually I wouldn't ask for a lift. But it was cold as hell, and my legs were stiff. He said, hey, Biz, what you want a ride? I said, hell yeah, he said, I can't cause my girl's inside. So he jetted off, leaving two tracks. Not at one time did homeboy look back. It took me an hour to get where I was going and to top it all off. It had to start showing. My sneakers was old and my coat was thin. But my determination kept me warm with this. I had nobody to help me as you can see. I'm alone again, naturally. Alone again, naturally. So I went into the show and started maxing. People came up to me and started asking what's up with me and what I'm getting on and how many records is Shantae going to perform. I don't know, but now I got to go because Shantae is calling me to do the show. First she was on and then she called me out. I did a lot of funky beats without no doubt. I put the mic on my head and began to rip. The crowd began to flip because I was rocking the ship. When we was done, I started to laugh. Mars of people come to me for my autograph. After the front was over, it was time to race. If I was riding, it would be the icing on the cake. As I saw Shantae get into a limo, I had to walk home. I wrote it in my memo. I'm alone again, naturally. All alone again, naturally. Now my eye. Nothing to worry, wherever I want to go, I get there in the hurry, that's right, I'm big time, very well known, now I'm saying rhymes instead of beats on the microphone, right about now, I'm going to explain, it was Cool VT, this one and the big daddy came, doing shows all together as one group, none of us acting big headed or soup, then after that, we all formed a rock, I paid everybody, told them how they rock, they all grabbed their props and went their separate ways. Swan said, I'll see you later, bitch, in a couple of days. When people see me leave, like a mama jammer, it's like if I was full with stars, lights, and glamour. But when Vaughn came home, he thought I was in somewhere with a girl. I was in bed. Alone again, naturally.